0: you're just stuck. And so you have to have good relationships broadly and try to control that as much as you can, as much as your customer will allow you to control. So you're not just beholden to your customer to execute that well if they can.
1: Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is York Bauer, who is the CEO of MoxieWorks. York, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Great to be here. Yep. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you. Let's start at the beginning here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, of course, what MoxieWorks is, and how you became the CEO there.
0: Well, I'm a repeat offender. I'm a serial <laughs> entrepreneur software guy. Started with a computer science degree way back, 40 years ago, and wound my way through 12 other tech companies before I ended up at Moxie Works, the usual kind of path you might imagine. Never stayed longer than four years in any of those other roles because that's how it goes in tech. But I have been CEO of Moxie now for a decade. As I like to joke, I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid. Apparently, I've I've graduated to making it now. So <laughs> how I came, though, to Moxie was the I have a pretty broad set of experience, everything from Microsoft down to my own little startups and so forth and everything in between. I've seen the movie a bunch of times, and in particular along the way, I had an ability to work in a number of entrepreneur and family-owned businesses. And so that background came in handy when I got recruited to run Moxie, because Moxie didn't start life as many technology companies do with the garage founder and then the seed route and the A route and the B route. It was a spin-out, actually, of a technology unit within a real estate brokerage here in the Pacific Northwest. I'm based in Seattle, named Windermere Real Estate. And Windermere had decided that they wanted to spin this thing out for reasons I'm happy to describe and was looking for a software experience CEO. That search resulted in me joining, also because I had experience with what was then still a family-owned Entity, the Jacoby family that owns Windermere, owns at that time, I should say, owned the 100% of the equity in MoxieWorks.
1: Was this an application that they really built for their own purposes first?
0: Yeah. And it's kind of what an is- interesting path. You know, I think real estate's a weird animal. As I mentioned with my career, I've kind of I've done a lot of different things in software. And through that, you end up selling almost all of it was enterprise with some detours into the consumer side. But on the enterprise side, I'd sold pretty much to every other industry there was except real estate. But residential real estate is very different as a beast. It kind of marches to the beat of a different drummer because the consumer that's in, we've all bought and sold houses. I'm sure most, if not all on this podcast now, it is a non-fungible asset, meaning that no two homes are the same. So you can't automate it to the same degree. And secondly, it's the most emotionally and financially significant transaction that most consumers will ever do. And so all of those things mean it's heavily dependent on a great agent and a trust relationship between the consumer and that agent. Not unlike you with your doctor, by the way. I think there are a lot of parallels that the medical profession has. And what I'm leading up to is technology moves much more slowly in the real estate industry because of this. So by way of background, Windermere was actually super early. So here's a fun cocktail party fact for you. Windermere.com, the domain Windermere.com was registered by Windermere on in January of 1995. So this is super, super early. And Winemer then went on to build a number of other technologies on a platform called Cold Fusion. You may recall that one from the way oh, back. I remember back. that name, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things like CRM and presentation products and you know, things agents need to work with consumers around and built quite a lead in the market. Winemer is very early in this and really saw what the role that technology could play in helping agents be more productive. And so, in the mid 2000s, they took their foot off the gas because technology is expensive, and they're brokerage. You know, there's no reason to overinvest. And then in the downturn, actually, right before the downturn, in 2007, Redfin and Zillow showed up here in Seattle. I mean, Seattle was the testing ground for those companies. That's why they were founded here. And so, through the downturn, the Great Recession, Windermere was smart enough to recognize that what was this internal technology unit building technology for a single brokerage really? Yeah. Should be spun out to live its life as a standalone software company for a variety of reasons. One is you could or to fund it more, and there was a recognition that the cost of technology for the next phase of the real estate market was going to go up because of competition from the likes of Redfin and Zillow and others. Second reason was to have it live its life truly as a software company. You now, brokers don't know how to run software companies. I don't know how to run a brokerage, right? It's a different thing. And we can talk about that because talk about a difference in business model, you know, subscription versus transactional. That's about the ultimate example. And then, thirdly, so that the products would get better faster because you'd be getting input from a broad market, not just a single customer. And that proved to be very clairvoyant, I would say. And the rest is history. When I showed up 10 years ago, Winamare was still the only customer and there was no codified product strategy for the broader market. So that was job one. But the point is, it was really based on, and this was a huge, went in my back, to be honest, I was able to inherit a lot of the thinking and experimentation and work that had been done to that point. We ended up, of course, building a new product strategy, new technology, etc. But still, the knowledge of what had been done was incredibly helpful.
1: I think a lot of people would agree, but some of the best software I've ever used was created by somebody who created it out of necessity they did it to solve their own problem. And then I thought, right. hey, I could productize this and bring it to market. But that sometimes comes with its own set of challenges as well, right? It was built for one specific business and not necessarily an industry. So when that got carved out, and it sounds like you came in fairly close to that when it got carved out as its own product, what were some of the challenges you guys ran into there?
0: It's a great point. As I've already mentioned, kind of the key recognition on Wintermere's part is that you know, if we're the only ones giving input, the product won't be as good as if many are giving input. But the flip side of that is, Winamar to this day remains a very large customer of ours, as you could imagine. And the consequence of that, though, is that there's still a bit of a remnant of, yeah, but we do it our way. By the way, it's true of all of our customers, right? So I think that's the hard thing for anyone that, as you said, built something out of necessity and then it becomes commercialized and serves a broad set of customers. There are inherent compromises in that transition. That's something we still work through together to this day. I'm very curious because this sounds
1: very similar to how we're at Rebar trying to solve problems. But when you have brokerages that all operate at least a little bit differently, right, have at least a little bit different needs, maybe have certain things that they like that they're already using that work very well and they're very ingrained with, but maybe need some supplemental things around that. And I know the life cycle of a brokerage has a lot of different components, but How do you solve for that? How do you create something that is scalable and can be sold to a lot of different clients, but at the same time, gives them what they uniquely need?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great point. And what I would tell my fellow subscription software brethren out there on this topic is you really do have to work hard to get this part right, because it can kill you if you don't. A few things, actually. The first is just say no to custom. The temptation, especially when you're small, the temptation, of course, is to say, oh, we have this big customer or we have this big prospect. We sell to the enterprise. We have a lot of large customers now. The temptation is to say, oh, yeah, we'll build that one-off thing for you. And that is just a death spiral because it's incredibly expensive to do. Most customers will not be willing to fully fund the true cost of development. Now you're eating it under the assumption that maybe I can reuse this in some other way over here. But if you haven't proven that, that's dangerous, number one. Number two... You're never done. It's not like you deliver it and then you're done, right? Software is never done. So then you have to maintain and potentially enhance this custom thing forever. And your customer, chances are, is not going to be excited about paying what it really costs to do that either. So now you're trying to subsume and sort of amortize that across your larger relationship with them. But the point is, it's probably a cost negative exercise, right? You're probably losing money doing that. And Thing that's the antidote to all of this. It's actually two things. To the extent that your product relies on content, which ours do, if you think about most of what an agent would do with a consumer, it's a lot of marketing things, it's presentations, it's things that yes, our technology enables, but it's infused with content, typically from the brokerage and that agent. And so that's where if you can direct them as much as possible to concentrate on that, and perhaps you have some design services that you supply perhaps you have a bunch of materials that are easily and automatically customized in the form of including their branding and their images and so on, which we do, then that gives the sense of what they really want, which is something that looks different, even if the technology is no different. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the feature flag. And I know it sounds obvious, but our system is not customizable, it's configurable. And that's the key because the customer gets what they want and not what they don't want. But from a delivery perspective, you're not writing code, you're flipping switches in your deployment team, in your onboarding team. And that, I think, makes all the difference. You just can't fall in a trap. It's so tempting, particularly like say when you're smaller and you need the revenue, but you just have to stay strong on that or it'll kill you
1: later. Have you been successful at MoxieWorks, even with some of your really big clients or your prospects at staying away from any custom development?
0: Yeah, we have. And I think the way in which we've done that, and this requires good customers, in which I'm happy to say we have good customers. In other words, there's a give and take. Here's the other thing I would tell my fellow entrepreneur. The reason your customer is doing business with you is they don't know how to do or they don't do what you do. If they were as good at building software as you are, they'd be building it. It's there. super important to remember that. Why? Because when the customer comes to you often and says, we need the thing, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, Nick, in your thing about it's cool when somebody builds something because it really solves the actual problems they're trying to solve. That's true for every customer you have. So when the customer sh- comes to you and says, I need a thing, you know, this thing, the really saying is I have this problem and this is my proposed solution to that problem. But it's rare that solution is the best solution because... They're not software people, right? They don't build products for a living. So it's your job and you need a strong product function for this, which thankfully we have, that can work with that customer, truly suss out what is actually the problem that they're trying to solve, and then build a better answer, a better solution that not only hopefully better accomplishes their goal, but is something that is then a common thing across your entire customer, or at least a significant portion of your customer base. Getting that conversation right. It's challenging. So you've been successful at MoxieWorks
1: for not ever going down that path. You've had a lot of experience with other software companies. Have you seen the pitfalls and experienced them of going down the custom dev path?
0: Oh, yeah. And I think the most strident example I can give you is look at software consultancies. There are many of them out there that do work for hire. And somewhere along the way, they longingly look at production software And they go, gosh, we'd like to do that. And so they try to then take some customer project and turn it into a broader set of production software. And I think that's a very hard road to hoe. I can't really point to anybody that's done that successfully. I'm sure there are examples, but they're few and far between. So in my mind, if you have fallen into that trap somehow, you just kind of have to lick your wounds, take care of that customer and do what's needed. But you just almost have to start over and go down the production road clean and simple because. Trying to go from one to the other is really, really, really difficult, in my opinion.
1: Well, let's go back for a second to something you touched on when you were talking about kind of how the company was formed out of Windmere. These are now two separate businesses that really operate two different ways. One works entirely on commissions, right? And then a software company, when it got carved out, and I assume there were people that went along with that too, that were used to a certain process and a way that their business works. And now you're trying to sell software. What was that transformation like?
0: It's an excellent point. It kind of goes along actually to what I was just saying. And I think about it, there were about 30 folks that had come along with the spin-out and the spin-out occurred in 2011 and I came into the business 2012. And at that time, there were still Winner as the only customer. So, you know, I think of it as a startup in that way. But it was definitely a transition because effectively, the company and then the people were configured as a consultancy because you build what your parent tells you to. And so there was a big transition that we had to undergo culturally at that time to move from that mentality to a production software mentality that I've been talking about. And these are great people Wintermer has had, well, for a long time, a good culture. And so it made that easier than if it had a poor culture, but it was still a challenge because for many, that was a big change as you can imagine. And certainly for Windermere, it was a big change.
1: Now that you're in that space and delivering software, I mean, I look through your website and there's a lot of different features, modules, whatever you wanna call it that you guys offer, right? That I'm sure have been developed over a long period of time what's your process for going through from a sales perspective? Because there's no sign up button on the website, right? This is a consultative process in terms of sales and talking about what their use cases are and what their needs are. And then I assume you would configure, to use your words, the system then to meet whatever those specific needs are and, and therefore custom pricing that goes along with that.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think for those that are maybe smaller companies or perhaps larger, but trying to go down a new road with some new sort of product or endeavor, I think the key thing you have to do up front is establish what the business model really is going to be. And I don't just mean, well, you know, we think we can build something that's useful to this industry because it has to go all the way down the layers to who's the user, who's going to pay, what are the characteristics of those. Everybody worries about TAM, you know, the total addressable market. And I think that's what one of the mistakes that's made in residential real estate. Everybody sees these TAMs as in terms of the amount of real estate, trillions of dollars of real estate to get, right? But it's the piece you have access to is this big because the Mm -hmm. commission's 6%, but really it's 3%. And it's actually a little bit less than that because there's discounting. And then the brokerage only gets, these days, about 15% of that. The thing goes like this. But so where I'm leading up to, and I'll give this as an example at Boxy, we chose very early on by choosing our customer base, not our product set. In other words, we said early on that the brokerage is the sun in the solar system of residential real estate. There are too many of them. I and mean, there are by some people's estimates over 50,000 brokerages, because a lot of them are, you know, one, two, three person shops, but that the market is vastly controlled by the top 2000, which is true. Yes. And has only gotten more so, by the way, over the last decade. So we made that recognition a decade ago and said we're going to sell to the enterprise. And we're going to sell these two thousand, and that shaped what we did from there. So, for instance, whereas a number of our competitors and others in the market have said we're going to produce an all-in-one system because we're going to the small end of the market and they just want you know a single throat to choke. They don't have the sophistication to to buy from multiple vendors, et cetera. That has very different implications for how you build your product than if you're going to the enterprise. And I will give you the example of how I describe to investors, in particular, how I describe what we're doing is we're trying to be the salesforce.com for residential real estate. What that means is we have a core system, which you know our most valuable piece, I would argue, is our CRM. And then we have a bunch of other products. But all that stuff lives on top of a flexible cloud-based data architecture. We call it the Moxie Cloud. The point is that like Salesforce, it's a modular product family. It's not all or nothing. Why? Because when you go to the enterprise, they already have a bunch of stuff. You can't go in and go, it's all or nothing, take all my stuff or I can't do business with you. It's what problem are you trying to solve? Oh, that thing? Well, here's the first product that solves that one. And then if you take good care of them, then, you know, would you like fries with that? Here's another. And you work it up from there. But that's totally a function of the end of the market we chose to pursue. If we had chosen the small end of the market, we probably would have done it all in one solution. And by the way, we also now were the first, this is five years ago, the first pioneer in the real estate space, an open ecosystem. So we have 175 other real estate tech companies that have integrated at the data sharing level with this Moxie cloud infrastructure that we have. And so, but again, you're doing that because you're servicing the enterprise, be very different if we were down here at the bottom of the market. I think that's the key thing for entrepreneurs and planners and analysts to think about in detail, because it's a mistake, in my opinion, to think of a great product and then go, where can I sell it? You need to think from the customer in, not from the product out. That makes sense. It does. So then once you've had a good idea of what
1: your particular client or prospect needs, and you've created this quote for them. How do you guys view pricing? Are you doing annual license fees, seat-based, usage-based? What are the different models you guys work under?
0: Well, so first thing to answer your question, we do multi-year enterprise level, you know, full enterprise licensed kind of deals. So the same kind of deals you would see broadly in enterprise SaaS. And that has proven for us to provide a level of stability, I would say, both for us and our customers versus the often month-to-month or annual contract kind of stuff that you see at the smaller end of the market, which, you know, if there's one thing that I could impress on your audience here, it's the importance of having high retention. And the business model we've chosen inherently, if you can sell it, which we can, has high retention. I mean, our gross retention is over 90%, and our net retention is over 100%. So that's what you want, because otherwise, you're constantly filling the leaky bucket. The people that are at the low end of our market that are selling to either individual agents or the small brokerage, they tend to see retention in the 40 to 50% range, which means wow. you're losing half your revenue every year. And that is just an absolute beating. And by the way, if you're looking for investment or ultimately to sell your business at some point, that's the key metric. Yes, growth has to be there, but the retention is everything. For sure. And to your point,
1: that's somewhat inherent in Enterprise sales right because the integrations are long a lot of users who know a product very well but you still have to deliver right you yeah. can underperform your competitors can pass you and offer more capabilities but how are you guys staying in front of what your customers want and continuing to deliver as much value as you can to them
0: it's a daily challenge I won't sugarcoat it Nick you're absolutely right yeah. you know it's a dog fight we have competitors like anyone else does and they keep us honest and put pressure <laughs> on us and as they should, right? It's That's how capitalism works. I think the way that we have learned to manage that best is to have rigor in our product process. And we've made a bunch of changes in the last 12 months, even about that, because what got you here won't get you there. We're over 50 million in ARR now. So that's very different than when I came to the company, we had 2 million of ARR, right? So the processes have to evolve. But I think that the key is in your product process because you only have so much engineering capacity. Any company, Microsoft only has so much engineering capacity. The mistake that gets made is by often I find by the business, and it's tempting. I fall prey to this occasionally myself, which is, yeah, but we could find a way to do this one more thing. Well, no, you can't. Something has to give. And so having a strong product function that can adjudicate taking care of the existing customer and their issues, responding to competitive functionality and maintaining and evolving your own infrastructure that undergirds all this stuff to begin with. You have to do all three of those things. It's just a question of in what proportion. That's where having a great product function is so critical because that's the function ultimately serving as the traffic cop to move your fixed dev capacity around. Now, do we have flexible outsourcing relationships? Sure. And that's helpful. But you don't have flexible money necessarily, right? You can't just go, oh, we're going to double our capacity because you made it out of the money. It's more important in my mind to make great decisions about how to allocate the capacity you have than to pretend like you're going to have a lot more capacity, if that makes sense.
1: It does. Something I want to ask you about on the website, when thinking about what brokers and agents do, it's very transactional, obviously. They're trying to sell their house or help somebody buy a house who then probably doesn't do it for... I don't know what the industry average is, six, 10 years or or whatever, a lot of time between those relationships, but I saw some interesting information about how to continuously engage with your customer. We talk about that all the time on this show because we're talking about how to reduce churn, right? That's always top of mind and staying engaged with those customers. So going all the way down to your customers' customers, how are you guys thinking about that? Because I saw some interesting content on there about stay engaged with your customer, offer them referrals to HVAC companies and things like that. So do you guys see that as an area where you can help them? Yeah, for monetizing? sure.
0: For sure. And this is one of the challenges and I've not cracked the code on how to get the industry to be materially better. I mean, we're doing what we can, as you point out, Nick, but we still have a long way to go as an industry, I think on this. So you're absolutely right. I'll put some stats for where my mouth is here. So. At the end of a transaction, consistently, because the NAR surveys, this type of stuff, the National Association of Realtors and others, but generally speaking, at the end of a transaction, the overwhelming majority of consumers, like 90% in that range often, say, I love my agent. and I would use them again, because they've had a good experience and they would use that person again. 12 months later, less than half of them can remember that person's name, right? It's just bad because there's totally no... We believe that. Going. Yep. And... While there are many things to do with follow-up, and of course our systems help to automate and encourage those kind of behaviors on the part of the agent. The reality is there's a single thing, and this is also something to think about with your product. You got to find the killer app. You got to find the use case that is the one thing that everybody must do and then really get that right. And then yes, you're going to do other things and add features and so forth, but you want to make sure this thing is a need to have, not a nice to have. And so we have a need to have we have a bunch of need to have apps, but one of them is called Moxie Present. It's what an agent uses to present to a consumer. The core use case for which is when you want to list your home and the agent comes to tell you what your home's worth and what they're going to do to help you if they list it. Yeah. And that is an absolute core use case. It's 75% of the use of our product is building those types of presentations. So we hit the nail on the head there. It's been a strong product for us for a decade. But here's the use case that goes to your point, that is not being done. And we have it in there and you can do it easily, but it, we just haven't cracked the code out of Motivate, which mm-hmm. is just do an annual property review. So as I said earlier, your home is the largest investment most of us will make you know, in our consumer lives. How about you just come by once a year and tell me what it's worth and what's going on in the market? I don't want to sell it necessarily, but at least I know you've got my back. You're an expert. You know what's going on. You're following up. Yep. You care, you know, all the things. Just like your financial advisor does, just like your doc does at your annual, right? I mean, just do that. By the way, it's highly proven to generate future business in the form of referrals or moves. The other irony is, you know, everybody talks about Zillow and all the lead gen and their Saturday Night Live skits about Zillow and Zillow posts their visitation numbers, you know, it's like 150 million visitors a month. And I was like, the reality is, go back and look at the data, you can openly search this on the web annual single-family homes sold, it's about five, five and a half million every year. Moves up a little bit, like 21 was crazy because it was a post-pandemic great relocation thing. And But even in the housing crisis, it's only dipped about four. So my point is, that's the number of homes that are getting sold, not 130 million. So if Mm -hmm. you as an agent, the average agent, by the way, knows about 400 people in their sphere of influence, as it's called, it's not a big database. Just curate that, stay Mm -hmm. in touch with those people, by the way, the answer to answer your question is, on average, people move every 10 years. It moves around a little bit, but that's roughly it. So if you know 400 people, 40 of them are going to s- buy or sell this year. And that's plenty to make yeah. a great living. 12 transactions is a good living for most realtors in most geographies. You know, when you think
1: about every business is trying to cultivate this relationship with their customers of trust, you stay top of mind and they come back. And of course, subscription is a great way to do that. You know, especially when it comes to a real estate agent who's involved in one of the most personal and largest transactions you'll ever make in your life. And to your point, 90% would use this person again because you get into their world. You know, yes. they've got this trusted relationship that it seems like they just walk away from. So oh, in the yeah. case is because they're not gonna transact for a, another 10 years, that there has got to be a way to leverage that trust and relationship that's there ongoing, not necessarily to further monetize the relationship directly, but even stay top of mind for referrals and, you know, things like that. It's like that. I'm with you. That feels like a very untapped opportunity for Well,
0: answers. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this is one of the grand visions I have for what Moxie can ultimately become. And we are we are so far away from even be really truly beginning to realize what I'm about to say. So I don't brought this out too often because I don't want to say out too... Pollyanna are disconnected from what's going on right now. We have plenty of fish to fry, but you know, if you sort of squint at what we have, what do you really see? Well, we have about 450,000 agents now on our platform using various of our capabilities through these enterprise relationships, which for perspective is about 30% of the total agents out there, something like that. And those 450,000 agents know. Because they're in our system, 100 million people in the United States and actually in Canada, we do business across the United States, Canada. So my point being, what else could you put through that? It's just a sales channel. It's a trust-based sales channel. They happen to be doing real estate transactions, but you can put mortgage, title, insurance, home services. But beyond that's the obvious stuff, and a number of brokerages do that. But what about financial services generally, and automotive, and luxury, and travel, and It's this amazing relationship if, to your point, the The agent. agent curates it. So that's my grand dream is to get our industry and help through technology to get our industry to be able to be good at that. Yeah. And
1: think through that a step further. A lot of people are buying within town, so they probably have a lot of resources. But especially when it's relocation, like somebody's coming to town, doesn't know anything, right? So you can be making all of these referrals to a whole bunch and introducing them to a whole bunch of people that you trust and maybe monetizing that in some way just further. The, there's a huge yeah. opportunity here.
0: Yeah. There's the yeah. book, The Go-Giver too. You've probably heard of that. It's a play on Go-Getter, obviously. It talks about how to sell through offering service to others. And I think it's the most powerful way to do that, especially in a real estate context. And by the way, the same is true, by the you know, we haven't touched on this, between Moxie and our customer. We can't just forget about them for if they have a two year or three year deal, we can't just sign them, deploy them, forget about them and show up 35 minutes in and go, are you going to renew? Every SaaS company has its challenges in this regard, but we've taken that seriously for many years. And we're never done being better at that because ultimately that's how you generate the retention statistics that I spoke about earlier that really are the key to having a high quality business. Speaking of that, and given that your
1: client list isn't as big as some that are going direct to to smaller guys, maybe have tens of thousands or millions of users, but you know your customers, right? You know who they are. That's right. You probably name most of them. How are you guys staying engaged with the way they are using your product, what features they might be looking for, or what's going to be next in your product roadmap?
0: We do that through a variety of ways. We have our existing account management staff, we have a good support team that we get inputs both more tactically, a little bit more strategically through support and account management. We also have our product team that I've already referenced a couple of times. They also are very proactive, particularly when it comes to new feature development of bringing our existing customers into that discussion, and doing discovery, actual hardcore customer facing discovery versus That's sitting in a room thinking great thoughts with a crystal ball, you know? <laughs> and so I give our team full credit there. So we have a variety of those connection points. The one thing I think we could be doing a better job of though, and I think this is true probably for many SaaS companies, is staying in touch with leadership and ownership of these brokerages, you know, the CEO and or owner of the brokerage. I try to do my part in that, but I think we have a ways to go yet. in doing that on a more formal basis, we don't, for instance, have a routine cadence. We do events where we bring these customer leaders together, but we're not doing it as routinely. The pandemic threw us off a lot on that, as you can imagine. And we haven't really found our footing again with doing formal events. We tend to do it in concert with other events. So for example, there's a big industry event next week. So we'll meet a bunch of people there, but not under our umbrella, if you will. Similar at the user level, we've talked about creating a user group, which we have not yet done. So there's, I think we're doing a decent job, but there's a lot more we can and probably should be doing to further cement those relationships. And just make sure that the customer is getting the full value. Because we know, by the way, we can prove through data across this vast number of agents now, that an agent that fully uses our stuff doubles their business. It's not theoretical. But we just have to make sure that our customers are actually getting that value. The final thing I'll say is, and this is always a dance you have with any customer, but I think it's perhaps a little more strident in the real estate space because a brokerage, their big mission is they want to attract and retain agents, of course. And so they try to be the face of everything to that agent, including, for example, the technology that Moxie supplies. And In some cases, they're fabulous at that. In other cases, it's just not what they are particularly good at. But yet, we have to do, I think, a better job of giving the confidence to let us do more of that. And we haven't done as much there yet as I think either. And so I would encourage the entrepreneurs out there, just don't rely on like the one contact that you have at your customer that you did the deal with and that loves you and you love them to be the key for everything. Because if that person leaves or... Isn't good at a certain thing that needs to be done over time. Is this you're just stuck, and so you have to have good relationships broadly and try to control that as much as you can, as much as your customer will allow you to control. So you're not just beholden to your customer to execute that well if they can't. Absolutely, I'll concur what
1: you said and agree that probably almost every CEO out there feels like we should be closer connected to yeah. our, especially our top customers, right, and not just have that. I don't want to call it a single point of failure, but like getting one perspective from that client, right? A lot of these guys are big organizations and you want to get multiple perspectives. And, you know, as much as you can, going down to the people who are using your software every day, That's right? They're the ones that are living and breathing it. And if they're not happy, they're going to start complaining. CEOs and leadership, here's those complaints coming from different areas. And then they start wondering if we're using the right software. So trying to get as many tentacles in there as you can is always a good strategy. Yep, all the way to that. For sure. What does the roadmap or next couple of years look like for you guys? Are you continue to grow the platform? Are you looking at potentially new industries and new verticals to bring this sort of software to what's next for you guys?
0: Well, I think as I discussed earlier, there are other industries we can tackle. I think we have a lot left to do in our core industry, at least for the next period. I think our plan is to continue to innovate with the products we have, continue to also grow through partially through acquisition. Now, I brought on. Vector yep. Capital is our financial partner three years ago to help fuel a growth strategy that could include acquisition. We're very selective. That's the other thing I would encourage entrepreneurs to think about. You know, Just because a spreadsheet says a deal is going to be a good deal does not mean it's going to be a good deal. Everybody thinks that You know, the point of the signature when you sign the deal, that's when the value was created. No, that's not the end of value creation. That's the beginning of potential value creation <laughs> if you don't mm-hmm. screw it up now from that point right. forward. So we've only done three acquisitions in three and a half years since we brought Vector on board and that was deliberate. We're very choosy and it's proven itself out to be, I think, a good strategy. So we will continue to grow within our sector on that. And I do believe that in the next 24 months, and this is a sad thing to say as a fellow entrepreneur, but I think proportionally, you're going to see more assets come to market because this downturn is hard on a lot of companies. We'll continue to be very selective, but I do think it's a time where A CEO needs to be thinking about proactively thinking about what types of acquisitions do they want to pursue versus leaning back and being opportunistic about it. Well, York, again, thank you so much for the time. If the listeners here want to learn
1: more about Moxieworks or have a question about maybe some of what we talked about today, where are the best places for them to go?
0: Sure. Well, Moxieworks.com would be a great place to start on just learning more. It's M-O-X-I. There's no E. So M-O-X-I-W-O-R-K-S. The other thing is you're welcome to email me, york at moxieworks.com. Happy to help out, grab a virtual beer and help a fellow entrepreneur, whatever the audience might find helpful. I'm always happy to get a contact on that. Awesome. Well, thanks for extending that. Once again, York, really appreciate
1: it. Appreciate all of the insights that you shared with us today. Great for our listeners and best of
0: luck to you guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me again, Nick. And good luck to everybody out there. Thanks again.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.